Welcome back to Peace in Their Time, episode 35, The Beer Hall Push. Alright, here's the highlight of pre-Depression Nazi history. Their completely misbegotten attempt at first taking over Bavaria, and then the entire nation. If you've listened to the general German episodes, and I hope you did, you'll know it doesn't go very well at all. But my earlier account was really just the quick gist of the story, and the larger historical context surrounding it. For the hapless Pugists who actually tried to pull it off, it was a very long night. Upon returning to Munich from his May vacation in the Bavarian Alps, Adolf Hitler proceeded to do what he did best, agitate and speak over the course of the summer of 1923. And all the while, things in Germany just got worse. Hitler regained the center stage that he had somewhat lost earlier in the year at the start of September when he spoke at a 100,000-man gathering of various far-right groups. The enthusiastic reception of his speech and the scale of the venue put him back at the forefront of the Bavarian far-right after the May Day fiasco. The groups there agreed to form an alliance called the German Combat League, because these guys are not subtle. Now Hitler's profile among the far-right was back and bigger than ever, and the Bavarian government immediately saw the threat that was coming. The state government declared martial law on September 26th, and Gustav Ritter von Kahr was brought back in to lead Bavaria through the crisis. Kahr, who had helped endow Hitler with an air of legitimacy two years previous, moved to curb the far-right groups he had done so much to encourage and protect. He formed a leadership triumvirate with General von Lassau and the state police chief Colonel Hans Ritter von Seischer. Kahr immediately started banning mass gatherings the Nazis had been planning. He hoped to starve Hitler of the agitation and attention he so relied upon, and threw down a gauntlet that Hitler was eager to pick up. And by the fall, the situation in the nation as a whole had spiraled out of control. Food was getting scarce, and people were getting desperate. Hitler and Ludendorff started planning a push in Bavaria to establish a base for an army to march on Berlin. Meanwhile, the Bavarian triumvirate started scheming an army push of their own to remove the Republican government before somebody like Hitler could. From the end of September to early November, there was nearly non-stop plotting and scheming, with Hitler trying to win over Lassau and Seischer away from Kahr, and the triumvirate as a group trying to win the army over from the Republic. Neither group got what they wanted, the situation appeared to stalemate. But Hitler was not going to let another opportunity get away from him, especially since he might not ever be this close to power and influence again. The Volkisch-aligned leaders tried to bring Carr to the table to hash out a joint plan for a push. But on November 7th, Carr made it plain he wouldn't associate with them. So the Volkisch team hurriedly set the date for their own push as the following day. Hitler rushed back to the party headquarters and told his inner circle to get ready immediately. The plan was to mobilize the full combat league across Bavaria and seize government buildings, railways, and communication centers. The triumvirate were holding their own public meeting on the evening of the 8th within a beer hall, and Hitler's plan was to apprehend them and coerce them into backing his push. While there was some knowledge among the participating groups that there was something in the works, the details, or even the time, had not been worked out in advance. Hitler and his allies were going to attempt an uprising on 24 hours' notice. The day of the push was a cold and rainy November one. Usually, black-and-white photos you associate with those days don't do any justice to the colors and sights you would have seen in person. For that day, though, it would be accurate. Word spread among the SA and other armed groups, and everyone started rushing into position. 
The problem, of course, was that there wasn't really a plan, more of a sketch of a plan. There were initial orders of what to seize and where, although even then sometimes the orders that came through were just show up. There wasn't much beyond that, though, and no additional instructions for if things went wrong or what to do after the initial moves were made. Hitler and the others were assuming they could just improvise their way through the whole thing once they got underway. Carr and the others were speaking at the Burgerbrauch Keller Beer Hall. To call it a hall wouldn't really do it justice, though. It was more a collection of bars, beer halls, and eateries in one big facility. The main hall alone could seat 3,000, and that's where the triumvirate were. Hitler and Hofstengel arrived first and each nursed a beer while watching Carr speak from the crowd. At 8.30 p.m., a squad of helmeted brown shirts, led by Goering, burst in through the doors. Hitler started making his way towards the speaker's platform, while a team of brown shirts set up a machine gun. Hitler took the stage, but by this time the crowd of 3,000 was making a terrible racket, and weren't really paying attention to what he was saying. Hitler pulled out his pistol, fired once into the ceiling, and yelled at the now-silenced crowd that the revolution was on. The beer hall push was underway. Hitler and his men gathered the triumvirate and led them to a separate room. Goering tried to calm the crowd and tell them that nothing was being done to specifically oppose Carr or the military. They just wanted to talk. The crowd understandably didn't go for that, which led Goering to sarcastically yell at them, You've got your beer. What are you worrying about? In the other room, Hitler promised all three leadership positions in the new national government to come, and that all this unpleasantness was just an unfortunate necessity. Carr was unmoved and wanted to speak with Ludendorff immediately. Hitler left them to consider the position they were in and returned to the crowd. They jeered at him about the theatricality of all that was happening, and when they wouldn't calm down, he simply told them that if they didn't shut up, he would order the machine gun to open up. The crowd settled down after that. Hitler went into one of his speeches and promised that his three hostages were coming around to his way of thinking. They would all be national leaders, Ludendorff would lead the army to come, that the decadence of the Republic would be swept away. The fickle crowd roared in approval, which the triumvirate were sure to hear in the other room. Ludendorff showed up in his old uniform and was taken to the hostages. He extended his hand in friendship and asked each to join with them. Lossow and Seisser both read the room and did just that. Carr was more reluctant, but did so with gritted teeth. At the same time, Rome was marching with his paramilitaries towards the army headquarters in Munich. The soldiers inside were indignant that Captain Rome was staging a mutiny, but there was no resistance. A little note for later, he didn't detain the team that operated the telephones in the headquarters. That's going to come up in a bit. At the beer hall, Hess stepped forward to read out names of those in the crowd to be arrested. Amusingly enough, this would include Franz Gertner, the judge who had kept Hitler out of jail before. Things seemed to be going well, but now is where they started to fall apart. A group was supposed to seize the army engineer barracks, but it found themselves in a standoff. Hitler decided that since everything was coming up his way, that he'd attend to the matter personally. This left Ludendorff in charge of the beer hall situation, which was very bad. For all his prior organizational genius, subterfuge and coups were not the general's forte. The triumvirs each gave their word as gentlemen, that if they were to leave, they would honor their agreement of partnership that they had just made under duress. Ludendorff thought that was reasonable and let the three go. By three in the morning, Lassau had reached an army barrack that had not been taken. 
From there, he contacted the unoccupied telephone switchboard room back at the Army headquarters, whose occupants immediately relayed his orders to every unit in Bavaria. Word spread instantly that all the claims that the triumvirate were working with Hitler were totally false, and every step should be taken to crush the uprising. Meanwhile, the Push's leadership, who had linked up at the occupied army headquarters, dithered and spitballed ideas to get themselves out of the jam. The no-contingency thing really bit them in the ass, and they quickly got desperate. And in a funny image straight out of a movie parody, as while they were trying to cobble together a course of action, orders were going out in the next room over how to crush them. Rom eventually caught wise to what they were doing, but it was way too late to stop the telephone operators. Realizing that there is no way to salvage the situation vis-a-vis the triumvirate, the push leaders returned to the beer hall, which had been emptied and was now a dirty, depressing gathering place. Elsewhere, a group of army cadets, a thousand strong, had gone over to the push during the night and marched to Carr's headquarters to reapprehend him. The cops, though, had organized there and barred their way. The cadets had machine guns, but couldn't bring themselves to fire on the police to get through. Eventually, they withdrew without a struggle. Another group moved towards the police station, but also couldn't bring themselves to fire on the cops they so desperately wanted on their side. By the early morning, the state's forces were moving in to finish the push, and the foot soldiers of the uprising had been sitting around all night without new orders after the initial burst of action. Trucks of both out-of-town pushists and police started entering the city. Gregor Strasser was heading back into Munich that morning with a group of his men and passed by another truck of cops who were headed the same way just to stop them once they got there. By 10 a.m., both the pushists and police had mobilized on the streets with neither group wanting to fire the first shot. So they just stared at each other in the drizzly rain. Army and state police troopers by this time surrounded the army headquarters, boxing in Rome and his troops. When word got back to the beer hall, Ludendorff suggested forming a column and marching down there to save him. And with no better ideas, that's just what they did. Two thousand men started marching from the beer hall, rifles in hand, towards Army HQ. The feeling at first was definitely depressed resignation, as everybody kind of had figured out that the jig was up. But they swept aside a police cordon on the way, and many bystanders marched with them or shouted words of encouragement and by the end of the march, they were singing songs to pet themselves up. The denouement, though, was not far off. They ran into a larger police cordon, and this time the cops weren't going to hesitate. Somewhere, a shot rang out, and the two sides opened fire on each other. Hitler was in the second row. The man directly next to him was shot and killed, because the world has no inherent justice to it. It's just random chance, apparently. The dead man, though, dragged Hitler down with him, and he was slammed to the asphalt, dislocating his shoulder. Gehring got shot in the leg, and was taken by car out of town and eventually out to Austria. And getting his wound patched up, he discovered his lifelong love, morphine. Hofstangel and some of the others weren't far behind in getting the heck out of town. Stryker, Eckhart, and Rome were arrested. Ludendorff was taken into custody, but let go to stand trial later. Hess had taken a group of hostages out of town, but had stopped to call in and see how things were going. The lackey he had brought with him to help manage the kidnapped officials was convinced by his own hostages to let them go. They took the car and left Hess stranded outside of Munich. Strasser and his men made a defiant mini-march of their own in the city in the aftermath, but dispersed after that. Strasser himself was later arrested. 
Hitler was taken to Hofstangel's house to get his arm looked at and patched up. Fraulein Hofstangel hid him for the day, but that evening the authorities arrived and took him away. Hitler left instructions for Ro Alfred Rosenberg to take command of the party in his absence, partly because he hadn't been arrested, and mostly because he lacked any support to take the party over for himself while Hitler was going to be away. Hitler was taken to Landsberg Prison, a former fortress converted to house inmates. His cell certainly wasn't the smallest or the most uncomfortable accommodation he had ever stayed in, and he had the sympathies of his staff and police forces, most of whom strongly respected his nationalism. But he was despondent all the same. The press and zeitgeist immediately started writing him off that this moment would be the last they'd hear of him. Which wasn't unreasonable. He had committed high treason. His political career should have been over, and he would most likely be sent back to Austria. The nationalist mission he had started in the trenches, and then in almost four years of street politics, had apparently ended in failure. Mind you, nobody had ever asked him to engage in that mission, but he was taking it very hard anyway. He refused to eat and quickly wasted away. He was visited by many supporters, among them Drexler, the man whose party he had usurped, who accused him of giving up the cause that he had brought so many into. From this new rock bottom, he began to pull himself back together. By the time of the trial for the Poosh, some months later, which ran from February 26th to March 27th, 1924, he had managed to compose himself and was back at his usual tricks. It was expected that a non-entity like Hitler would at least face some justice. The court had its reasons to go easy on it. Hitler was beaten, that much was sure, but he was a beaten man who knew where the bodies were buried. He had led an uprising against the Bavarian government and the army, but he had also been conspiring for months with those very same parties to bring down the Republic. Hitler might have ultimately pitted himself against the Bavarian triumvirate, but those three men were very guilty of conspiracy and treasonous activity as well. Hitler hinted to the court while being questioned of all the backroom conspiracies that had been hatched in Munich all through 1923, as well as the shadow army that was being maintained by the Reichswehr. This spooked the Bavarian government enough that they begged off the national government and ensured that the trial would be held in Munich, away from the national courts. An informal arrangement was made between Hitler and the court. Hitler would accept responsibility for the push, basically acting as the fall guy, while the court would let him put on a show and go easy on him. The defendants were brought in together, most of whom showed up in their army uniforms. Ludendorff went the extra mile and had a limo drop him off. Hitler, oddly enough, was the humblest figure among them, wearing only a suit and his iron cross. Hitler gave speech after speech while on the stand, which the presiding judge allowed due to his own nationalist sympathies. The entire thing was a farce, and quickly devolved into an embarrassment, as Hitler was allowed to say anything he wanted with next to no objections. He would rant, he would jeer at the witnesses, he would break out into monologues, it really must have been exhausting for everybody covering it. The other defendants were unremarkable, aside from Ludendorff, who acted exactly opposite of Hitler and denied everything and claimed to have been misled as to what he had gotten into. The verdicts were read out on April 1st. Hitler and three others got five years in prison. Ludendorff got off scot-free. Importantly, the court declined to deport Hitler back to Austria, citing his obvious love of his adopted nation and also his military service. The court didn't consider Hitler's previous imprisonment for inciting violence back in 1922 
because the presiding judge was the same as in Hitler's trial back then. Plus, Franz Gertner, who had previously prevented Hitler from going to prison for violating a probation, lobbied for the court to be lenient as well. All his efforts to help Hitler would later be rewarded when he was made Minister of Justice in Nazi Germany. The trial was, in short, a sham. And that was pretty much how everybody saw it, too, across all political spectrums. A man had launched an uprising and got just five years for it. That was it. It was this kind of thing that made the state as a whole seem illegitimate in people's eyes. Hitler was sent back to Landsberg and was assigned more long-term accommodations. And I'm not being sarcastic when I say accommodations. The part of the prison he was placed in was more bed-and-breakfast than Bastille. His room was fully furnished, there were common areas, the place had pictures and decorations and all that. Plus, all his Nazi buddies that were being sentenced were also sent there to join him, so he had company during his stay there. He even had full access to a typewriter, which he would put to use to start writing his abjectly awful combination of a political treatise and autobiography, Mein Kampf. This most notorious of screeds is barely readable, which have led some to conjecture that it was put together by Hess while Hitler dictated whatever psychosis crossed his mind in the moment. While the book is certainly a mess, I'm going to touch on it as it did lay out some of Hitler's mindset, which will prove useful for explaining some of his future decisions. The central idea was that, of course, the Jewish race is simultaneously subhuman, but also in control of the world's power centers, and that Germans, despite being superior in every way, must also wage both a literal and metaphorical war against them, or risk being destroyed. Somehow, I don't know. This was the crux of all Hitler's calculations, the ever-present and active specter of a centuries-long plot to destroy Germany. In Mein Kampf, he also explains his solution to this threat, active elimination of what he described as a poisonous influence. He didn't come out and say death camps, but his hints left little room to the imagination. The Jewish threat to Germany in his eyes was absolute and could not be accommodated. Simple oppression was not enough, and in the book, the language is definitely one of permanent removal. There was also the matter of repairing Germany's standing and power in the world, which would go hand in hand with its efforts to combat the global conspiracy against it. To that end, Hitler laid out his concept of Lebensraum, or space for living. This was not an original concept. Many have made the comparison of expansionist ideas like that to the United States' own manifest destiny and westward expansion, or to the European scramble for overseas colonies. And while Hitler's ambition with Lebensraum was to expand eastward, which meant that unlike the other examples would be directed towards other white people, even this was not a novel idea for the time. In the days of the German Empire, there were many who correctly saw that Germany lacked the capability for overseas expansion, and would be better served following the northern European plain eastward into the Russian Empire. During World War I, the vast conquests made on the Eastern Front inflamed the imaginations of nationalists who were awakened to the possibilities of eastward expansion. And these ideas would not go away after Germany was defeated either. In fact, even the supposed Republican Gustav Stressmann saw German economic dominance of Central and Eastern Europe as the most viable route to Germany reasserting its great power status. Hitler, though, took those ideas several steps forward. He would not be limited by simple economic hegemony. The East would be occupied by force, 
and it would not be constrained either. German armies would march all the way to the Urals, and this would accomplish two things. One, the Soviet Union, also in his eyes a tool of the imagined international Jewish conspiracy, would be destroyed, and the undermining threat of communism ended. Second, Germany would acquire a vast new area rich in farmland and natural resources. These new acquisitions would be opened up to German colonization, which would provide room to expand the German population. And upon controlling a landmass like that, Germany would naturally become the master of Europe and be in a position to dominate Eurasian affairs. It would then be more than a match for any threat. There was the wrinkle about what to do about the existing populations, which would not take kindly to being colonized in such a fashion. Hitler, again, did not come out with calls for mass exterminations, but these populations would be expected to be put to work in the service of their German master race, their own nations too inferior to be treated equally with the Germans. This, again, was not a novel concept, since before World War I, German society had come to demonize and fear the Slavic populations to the east as dangerous and worthy only for servitude. The exploitation of the conquered areas of the Russian Empire during the war already foreshadowed German actions to come. So the idea of their superiority to their Slavic neighbors was not new to the population of Germany. The book presents its ideas alongside Hitler's own accounting of his life up to this point, with the predictable distortions you would expect from someone trying to shine the best possible light on themselves. Hitler would eventually publish the book, which sold poorly until he became the nation's leader, which definitely helped boost sales. Other than the book, though, Hitler was in kind of a limbo while in prison. He received visitors and was fleeced for political support from the other leaders of the Volkish movement, or on that to come. His time in prison would not last long, though. Despite only being sentenced to five years for, you know, treason, he had many supporters in the Bavarian judicial system, most important among them, Franz Gertner. Gertner, whom I will remind you was taken hostage during the Beer Hall Push, was so rabidly pro-Nazi that he worked to get Hitler out early. He was apparently not alone either, as other judges, impressed by his nationalist performances during the trial, all sought to help reduce his sentence. This lobbying campaign led to an early release on December 19, 1924. He was given a friendly farewell by the supportive prison staff, who wished him well in his future endeavors. This was definitely yet another miscarriage of justice, but the outcry was less than it otherwise could have been, probably because the political circumstances had changed wildly in the year that Hitler was off the streets, as politics did not slow down while he was locked up. The inflation disaster had passed by. Foreign money was stimulating the economy, and the Volkish movement had collapsed. Turns out, a recovering economy meant that people were less inclined to support radical action. Hitler had left control of the Nazis to Alfred Rosenberg due to Rosenberg not being popular and thus not a threat to his leadership, but that decision kind of had its consequences once Hitler left prison. The effect of Rosenberg's inability to provide strong leadership had led the Nazi party to fracture while Hitler was locked up. And keep in mind, the Nazi party had also been officially banned. It wasn't operating out in the open anymore. Front organizations had been created to replace the now illegal NSDAP and allow operations to continue. But Rosenberg had fallen afoul of Stryker and Hermann Esser, another early Nazi who sought to displace Rosenberg. 
Gregor Strasser had turned north and had sought out an alliance with the DVFP, yet another Volkish group associated with its southern counterparts. Also, under the encouragement of Ludendorff, the Volkish groups across the nation coalesced under his figurehead leadership in the first part of 1924 to form a united front of the remaining racist and nationalist groups. Hitler had been fearful of this exact thing happening while imprisoned, as he became far less central to the movement, but also couldn't do a whole lot about it. He had been confined, and it was extremely uncertain if he could ever achieve a place of national prominence after the fiasco of the push. But with little else to fall back on in life, Hitler would cling to his ambitions and begin to start over, which we will be picking up on again next week. Join me then, and as always, thank you very much for listening. Thank you.